We are in Champions League, man. That was my Dilly din, dilly dong, come on. I will love it if we beat them. Love it. This is the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast with Gary Kearney. Hello, coaches. Thanks for joining us for this interview with Swansea City set-piece coach Andy Parslow, going through how to coach set-pieces, how to build a framework, how to communicate with players. Absolutely brilliant interview. Andy's going to join us for a webinar, a Modern Soccer Coach webinar, on July 26th. Please go to the link below and register and join us July 26th. If you can't make the live event, you'll get a video recording of it for yours to keep. So looking forward to that, July 26th, link below. Please don't forget to subscribe to the channel. More content coming soon, Modern Soccer Coach. Thank you for watching, enjoy. Andy, thanks so much for joining me today on the Modern Soccer Coach podcast. Really, really excited to have you on. Thanks, Gary. Thanks for having me. No, thanks for coming on. This is a, it's always a hot topic and I'm sure you're aware of the kind of the set piece and the data and the marginal gains around the world, really. It's become more mainstream with, articles and ground guru and all this great stuff mm -hmm. and i know you've been on that as well so yeah. i wanted to get stuck into it i know there's a lot of coaches that will be on here that'll you know that are working at amateur pro semi-pro college high school even that are like oh, i need uh, i need help on my set pieces how do we work it in the weekly schedule it's almost the first question so i wanted to hit you with that one straight away is give me a week in the life of your processes and schedule Okay, so obviously at a professional level and working in the Football League, um, the week varies based on when our matches are. So a good week is Saturday, Saturday, but the majority of, week, of weeks are Saturday, Tuesday. So we, we fit in three games in seven days, basically. Um, so because the fixture schedule is so congested, I'll try and cram as much in off of the pitch as I possibly can because the time on the grass is so limited. So as an example, we play on a Saturday we're off and the players are doing recovery on a Sunday, on a Monday morning. So the day before the Tuesday game, they'll have cryotherapy in the morning. They'll come in and do some more recovery. A lot of the starters will be off feet, so they won't train as such, or they'll, they'll do very limited work. And the subs from the previous game will, will, will train. Um, and then we'll do walkthroughs and set pieces there. So there's hardly any time to implement any new ideas in that period of time. It, it tends to be... Um, tweaks of things that we've done in the past and, and sort of around our general principles so those Saturday Tuesdays it's cramming in as much one-to-one um, -one conversations in the office or in the analysis room small group chats meetings things that are away from the grass because we just don't have the time on the field to to go through things and then adding just a little little layer on the grass where we can Saturday Saturday feels like the most amount of time in the world when you use Saturday Tuesday so I'll tend to layer it a little bit more in the week so that's where I could be a little bit more innovative, a bit more inventive, creative, and try some different things out. Because I think one of the key principles of attacking set pieces, certainly, is unpredictability. So if you're, like everyone watches and analyzes the opposition to death now. So if you're always doing the same things you've always done, the opposition will be able to work it out. And that's something I learned um, in League One last season, actually, um, when we got put under a lot of scrutiny because of the success we had earlier in the season. Um, and that's where I sort of learned to freshen things up a bit more and make subtle tweaks here and there. Um, so in those weeks, Saturday to Saturday, that's when you could be a bit more creative. So it might be that on a Monday morning, I'll always review the previous games uh, set pieces and go through things with players, whether it's um, someone's lost his man at a corner, might not have resulted in a goal for the opposition, but essentially we haven't defended that set piece. We've gotten away with it. So I might go through the marking style with, with, with that player. Um, the attacking ones, the ones that we don't score from, I need to look at why we didn't score from them. Was it execution? Was it decision-making? Was it timing? Was it strategy? And sort of whittled down the ideas of all the, the, the principles that we have to see which one of those we didn't hit. And then I can go through those with the players again. doesn't need to be a big meeting with the whole squad. It might just be the odd one-to-one -one chat or small group chat here and there. Um, and then I'll start to sow seeds for the next game. And it won't be a case of we're going to review everything we've just done and now here's everything for the next game. It will be done sort of layer by layer throughout the week. So I might start on the Monday Let's say I've got an idea for the weekend's fixtures because I've already prepped, already prepped the weekend one. Um, I'll try and go a game in advance if I can. It's not always possible, but I'll try to. Um, I might already know a particular run 
that I want one of my players to make for this weekend because it suits the weakness of the opponent we're going to play. I might just send that player a video on the Monday morning of a, someone else that's made that run. Might be Ronaldo or someone like that. Just say, just have a look at this. Might be useful for the weekend. Then on Tuesday, we might go out and we might practice it on the grass. Just unopposed, just ball coming in and making that move from there. Then Wednesday will tend to be off. Thursday, it might add a couple more opponents. And then Friday, we do it with the whole thing. So it can be built up a little bit more. By the time we get to Saturday, it's not just something we've crammed into a 10-minute session on a Friday morning after we've done our match prep. It's something that's been layered throughout the week. So the learning is just a little bit more, uh, gets a little bit deeper. So a long way of answering your question. It varies Saturday, Tuesday, Saturday, Saturday. Um, but basically, it's trying to get in as much work as I can without taking time away from the general general coaching team's time on the grass. So as much, I call it coaching in the shadows, so being away off of the pitch in the analysis room, speaking with players, and then I'll just add the bits on the pitch as well. Very, very interesting. Like coaching in the shadows was, I mean, as a lot of people think, and a lot of college coaches over here have this two-game schedule, Thursday, Sunday. Mm -hmm. I talked about this in the last podcast as well with um, with Mike Brown at, at Bodo Glimt, and he was saying, yeah, well, Europa League, same thing. And, and I think a lot of people think that at a professional level, it's it's like the NFL. It's every Sunday you play, but in reality, it's you, you're dealing with sometimes three games a week. Uh, what I wanted to ask you then was coaching in the shadows is an art, and that's something that I, I learned in your podcast where you're very adaptable with how you've found your way in the game and progress in the game and how you find your way in environments. I mean, looking around and adapting into sending a player this, sending a player that, how do you schedule a week? Like, do you sit down before it and say, need to get that there? How do you organize all of this here going into it? Um, I guess it, I, I know sort of what my, what my method is going to be. So I know the amount of work I need to try and get in where possible. And it, I guess it's a case of looking a few fixtures ahead and just seeing, right, in that week, I'll be able to get this done, then this done, then this done, then. On another week, I might need to cram a bit more into one day. Other times, I can stretch out a little bit more. So it really does vary. And, and, and the key word, as you said, is adaptable. Um, so in terms of organising, like I said, I know my methodology. I know what my process is going to be. And it's just a case of working through it in the the right amount of time. Because, as I said, I don't really want to give the players everything in one go because it's just too much. I've mentioned this before. Players take on so much information, a ridiculous amount of information, They've got the in-possession work, their out-possession work, position-specific stuff, what, they, what their job is in transition. They've got their own individual prep that they want to do for games. If I'm then adding a load of things on set piece, it's just it, it partly becomes noise, but it's just too much info. And we then want the players to go out with a clear head and make good decisions. Well, there's too much going on in their heads. So it's trying to keep things as simple as possible and stick to what the process is without clouding it too much. Um, but to be honest, I, I might be doing myself a little disservice. You do have to be organised. You do have to make sure you know what you're doing and when you're doing it and, and try not to veer off it too much while still remaining adaptable. Yeah, it brings us on nicely. So this, uh, you know, it's a, it's a very innovative, very new way of coaching, specialist coaches, set-piece coaches. There's no real template, whereas if, if I'm a goalkeeper coach, you've got 30, 40 years of research where there's full-time goalkeeper coaches. But for a position like yourself, did you get feedback or did was someone advising you on, you know, how to actually structure a job that is at best five years old? You know, at most, uh, sometimes the reality of the job doesn't exist and you're creating it as the plane's taking off. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, basically, no, I, I wasn't wasn't given a, a template or anything like that. I was but the, the term that I was given was it's your baby. So basically do with it what you will. And obviously you're, you're held accountable for it, as you would expect. Um, but sort of feel your way in and 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 work out how you want to do it and, and, and go with it from there. And in terms of the feedback, the feedback's on a match day. Either we score or we don't. Either we concede or we don't. If we've conceded, I know my work hasn't been good enough in the week in terms of the prep. If we haven't scored, I know that I need to improve the strategy or improve whatever it might be. Um, so that that becomes the feedback. And I've got no issue with saying I learned from mistakes as I went. Defensively, I learned through goals that we conceded. And from an attacking perspective, I learned through goals that we didn't score. Um, and it's just a constant process because things change all the time in football. You're always up against a different type of opponent that might have a different marking scheme or they might use a different type of zonal marking. Um, obviously, every player's got players, every team's got players of different heights. So each week is a different challenge um, and you're having to adapt to that each time and, and, and learn as you go. So it's still, it still is an ongoing um, evolutionary process. And it's just one, as you say, it's about five years old. It's very much in its infancy. It will continue to, to grow, I think.
I'm very good friends with the assistant coach here, the the goalkeeper coach at the club. Um, he does the he does the goal, he does the set pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, and every time there's a set piece, I feel so bad from every time there's a set pieces. He gets off his he gets off his bench and he walks to the edge of the technical area and he crouches down. And yeah. I always I always think he's praying when he's doing it. You know, it looks like. But what you're saying there is you take responsibility for the goals conceded. Well, yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, not normal. Yeah. Not normal for a set piece coach to take responsibility because you don't know what you could be up against. Peter Crouch. Yeah, I, I think. Listen, there are there are times when you you'll come up against a team of absolute giants and ball goes up in the air. It tends to land on the tallest thing, basically. It's just it's just physics. So there are times when the, you look at things and you think there's not a lot we could have done to stop it. Sometimes you don't have to stop it. You just have to um, put it off or affect it. So I'll talk about sometimes we've got players that are market players that are just much bigger than them. It's just the reality because we don't have a massive team. And my prep during the week will look at what that opponent does and say, what's his movement like? What's his strength? His strength might just be that he's big, well, in which case you've got to put off his jump because you're not going to beat him in the air, but you've got to make sure if we don't get first contact, his contact is affected. So it's not free contact. His contact is when he's off balance so it takes less power from the header or it takes power from the header so it's less likely that even though they win first contact it's less likely they score a goal it should be easier for our keeper to adapt to it or whoever's landed on second contact to adapt to or whatever so we'll always try and affect it and I, I think with everything I think you have to look at yourself first so no it might if a player's switched off and their man's just run across them and scored all right directly no it perhaps isn't my fault but I've got to take responsibility because I've got to make sure that that player in the future, when it gets to a defensive set piece situation, he doesn't switch off. He's got to be this, got to be where he comes alive and he's got to make sure, well, if anyone does score, it's not going to be my man. So I'm going to make sure, and to be fair, this player I've got in mind because it happened at Bolton last season where he just switched off and this guy's six foot five, he shouldn't be losing any headers. The guys run across the front of him, headed it in and I had a bit of a go at half time, quite a go at half time and it never happened again. And it's a case of, right, I'll take this one. That's on me. I'm going to make sure that you never lose your man or you never lose your, your focus in those situations again. Because if I keep going, oh, the players didn't do this, the players didn't do that, I'm never going to grow and get better. And as I said, it's an evolutionary process. And I, I just think as soon as you start deflecting and looking, where else can I put the blame? You, I just think you're going to hide into nothing. You're going to become a lot better by looking at yourself first. That said, I do, I do think there's some growth in terms of education particularly among among fans on this side because you'll see like a team with a set piece coach will concede a goal and everyone's coming for the set piece coach and that's fine but if the goal obviously is from a set piece if a team concedes just a goal in general play you don't see everyone coming for the goalkeeper coach so there's I do think there's sort of a, a little bit of a trade-off but my preference is is to take responsibility mm. you mentioned there about the, the changing room at half time and you know, putting your feelings out there and, and holding them accountable. And you also said at the start about coach the shadows. If someone loses their mark, is it addressed in front of everyone on a Monday or Tuesday? Do you think about the person or how do you manage that relationship side while still trying to hold them accountable for the defensive duties? 100% think about the person without a shadow of a doubt because remember the objective is for it not to happen again. If I lose this player by going about it the wrong way, Say, for example, they don't want it done in front of everyone. And some players are like that, and that's fine. If I hammer them in front of the whole team, the chances of them doing that again probably heighten rather than reduce because you want him to sort of take, I guess, take your word for for, for what you're saying. You want them to do what you're asking to the best of, their poss- best of their ability. And it might be if you've just, if there's no connection there between you, if you've got no sort of um, relationship whatsoever, it's broken down, them trying to do that, I don't want to say for you because it's for them and for the team, but it is a little bit for you as well. Mm. I just think it decreases a little bit. You're much better establishing a better connection. Then the chance of them doing it again, I think, reduces drastically if you if you go about it the right way. So, again, there's no not a one-size-fits-all approach. On this occasion, the half-time situation at Bowen, I did do it in front of everyone. Um, but I'm not someone... So I, I'm very direct and I'm very honest, but that doesn't mean that I'm ranting the raving the check. That's not really my personality. So the fact that I did on this occasion... It was completely not out of character, but it's not so. It's not something that's just noise because it doesn't happen often. It's one of those where we probably have to like fix up and listen a little, a little bit here because Andy's clearly not happy with this or, or that, whatever. 
Um, but if I to do that every single week, it, it just becomes noise. It's just background. Like it's, it's just, oh, here it goes again. So might be a phone call on a Sunday. might be a chat on WhatsApp, just a text. Um, it might be one I'm quite fond of really just putting them into, into the meeting room and just showing them the clip one-to-one -one because when the footage is there in front of you, there's, there's no arguing. And sometimes it's not even a case of I'm saying, this is what you've done wrong. It's what you see. So what do you see here? And we'll go through the process. We'll go through the, whether it's a corner or a free kick, whatever it is. And they have to see the, they have to see what the error is or see what could have been better. And the key that I always come back to, and I mentioned this earlier, just because it hasn't resulted in a goal doesn't mean we shouldn't address it. Like, as I said, successfully defending a set piece is different to getting away with a set piece. Like, if I don't, if I don't address all the times where it happens, but we don't concede, eventually we'll concede. So I have to make sure that I'm nipping that in the bud. And that's where you've got to be really hot on your standards, really, because it's so easy. Like you win one nil, you've like everyone's happy. It's so easy to go, oh, great, right, brilliant. Let's have a drink. Next game. If you don't look back and reflect on those things that could have been better, you're going to get caught up further down the line. So it's really important that, you, that you're addressing those on your getaway as well. Brilliant. Brilliant. Um, principles. You've, do you have a set of principles that you have for set pieces and, and if so, you know, how many do you have that are consistent throughout, you know, week to week? Yeah, do have principles. Um, the number, the exact number, I'm not entirely sure because, again, it evolves really. And again, as I'm sort of growing in the in the role and the position as well, there are things that I'll add or take away and um, things that I'll develop. So there'll be some for attacking, some for defensive. The reason I, I like principles is due to the fixture congestion. So I wanted to have three new set pieces for every game that we played. And I realised very quickly, once I got into the job, it wasn't possible. It's, 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 I can't say it's impossible because like, it could be done, but I don't think it would be done to a particularly high standard because there's just too much, as I meant, there's too much for the players to take in anyway. So principles are better that are just subtly tweaked based on the opponent. So you're never going too far away from what you do. But as I mentioned, unpredictability is important. So it might be that our principles to go and attack the near post they remain the same, but we're just going to do it to the far post instead. So things will just, we'll, we'll just, we'll just tweak slightly. Um, but the defensive ones will tend to stay the same. And again, I can't, I can't really put a figure on it, but there, there'll be things like, for example, one of the principles for an attacking set piece is simplicity. So that doesn't mean just boot the ball in the box and try and head it in. There might still be something creative about it, but try and keep things as simple as possible because the more simple something is, the easier it is to take on basically. And then that means you can, every now and then throwing something a little bit more complex because you you sort of got your, your your foundation anyway and you might just throw in the odd one here and there that's a little bit different to, to keep the unpredictability as well. So, yeah, I can't really put a number on it, but there, there'll be a few for attacking, a few for defending. Brilliant, brilliant. Yeah, brings us along nicely to... Uh, I was looking at some set pieces um, of, of, of uh, on Instat this morning. It's something that I'm fascinated with is coaching the short corner. Mm. And this unpredictability. So, this is you against Accrington Stanley. Yeah. So I'll I'll play through it. Um, and this is what I'm fascinated by. All right. Mm -hmm. So first thing I'm fascinated by is it's a two v one. Yep. Which is quickly becomes a two v two, but then you've got this player, number twenty seven. Yeah. Uh, how much of this is planned? This particular one, very little. <laughs> so, to be to be fair, so one of the one of the the principles that I like because football again changes, and as a coach on the sideline, you can't dictate everything that's happening all the time. And the players are the ones that are playing the game, so they might see something and just act on it, and that's fine. We score goals from that this season, so I do give the players autonomy. If you see something, just go just go for it. So something that, that these two lads have seen, they're young, energetic, hungry, attacking players, the two that have gone to, to, to the corner flag. They've seen that Accrington, so this was last game of the season, um, Accrington are home and dry in terms of um, where they are in the division. We have to get goals in this game to try and stay up and we're losing the game. So they've seen that Accrington might be a little bit slow to go and set up. They might switch off a little bit. So you'll notice as the ball's out of play, they're running over to the corner flag, our players. Mm. There's a case of, can we get it back in play as quickly as possible? Try and catch some cold. Now with the, the 27 here. So one of the first key things is the, the second man that comes out, comes out from the, the angles from the goal rather than from the edge of the box. So because yeah, it comes yeah. out from the goal, the next free pass is going to be towards the edge of the box. If the angle of the approach comes from the edge of the box, so it's more of a 
horizontal run, more of a lateral run, run towards the ball, then the angle is going to be somewhere else. It might be that you cut it back to the taker or you cut back inside or the run that 27's made, you might play him in there instead. So this now isn't a routine. This is now them seeing the picture. So the next picture is that Paul Osu, who's the number 37 that we left back, he then arrives towards the edge of the box to receive the next one, takes a shot. This isn't my favourite sort of routine, but again, it's something the players have identified there and I've got no problem with them trying that out there, there and then. As long as they can sort of justify why it's being done, I've got no issue with it. I guess it goes the other way as well, where we've had situations where there was a game, for example, so Shrewsbury away earlier in the season. This is around October time. At that moment in time, we've scored the most goals in, from set pieces in the country. No one better than us in the country, top four divisions. The team we were playing at Shrewsbury had conceded the most goals from set pieces in our division. So you're thinking, let's get as many set pieces as we can. Let's nick fouls where we can. If we're going down the line, just play it off and get win a corner. Let's Because this is clearly a, a good strength of ours and it's their weakness. We got two corners in that game mm. and you'll get teams that get 10, 11, 12 corners. Oxford had 13 corners against us at home. We had two corners in the game. The first one, we ripped to the far post, headed it across and headed off the line. So great. We already know next corner we get, they're going to be a little bit rattled because they would have prepped loads for us here because they know what, like how good we are at them and it's a weakness of theirs. So let's keep loading it on them. We get the second corner, two players run over, play it short and don't even get the ball in the box. And it's those situations where, as a set piece, I'm tearing my hair out because I'm, I'm thinking, yes, you've got this autonomy, but have a think, lads. Come on, think about it. So, oh, yeah, have you got it here? Right. So this, you can see that our centre-back, still got a centre-back on the edge of the box. No, we do get in the box. Headed clear. Like, there's just nothing that's, that's come of it. Now, if we're going to do a set piece, yeah, there has to be a reason why we're doing the short corner. It can't just be mm. oh, it's something different. It's got to be a solution to a problem that's in front of us. You can't just make up the solution because you don't know what the problem is yet. Like, you, it, there has to be a reason behind it. Um, and on that occasion, it didn't make sense, in my opinion, because of statistically what the differences were in the team, what happened from the first quarter that we did. Let's keep going. Let's keep trying to attack their weakness. So there are situations there where the players have autonomy and they can make the wrong decision. And there'll be other situations where they make the right decision and, and, it, and it pays off. So, um, yeah, so that's not a pre-planned routine that we're going through there. That's something the players have tried. and Unfortunately, it didn't come off. Yeah, fascinating, fascinating. God, this is brilliant. Um, just when it's an Arsenal there, so it came across there that you're, you you played them before Shrewsbury. So when we're on this here and, and you're up against you know, two corners against Arsenal, yeah. and obviously it's Premier League, like look at the size. Um, I mean, you, when you're doing your scout there, what are some things that you would try to expose in, in, a, in a team that Premier League with those type of athletes? So we we should have scored this corner. And the reason we didn't, and th again, this comes back to, um, this is a great example of how much information the players have to take on. So the target area was hit pinpoint by Ant Hartigan, who's our taker. If you just pause it, just here. So we had um, Luke McCormick, who's in the yellow boots by the front post. He's read the signal wrong on this corner. He was meant to block number 22, stop 22 from jumping for them. Number, they're number 22. We were then going to use our number 22, who, as you can see, is head and shoulders above his marker in terms of height. He then is due to arrive above the, the player that's being blocked and head it in the corner. Quite straightforward. But think about the magnitude of the game. Think about, again, the detail that would have gone into the planning. So Macro on this occasion, he's just got the signal wrong and he's gone out to block the near post man instead of the far post man. But that difference, I think we're 1-0 down at this point. This makes it 1-1. And great from my perspective, a goal at the MS from, from a set piece. I'd be delighted with that. But it's those little details. That if you don't get them right, this is the outcome. So we still managed to work it back out. Second phase is hugely important. We get it back in. They go and defend that instead. Um, but those little details here and there, just by one, one player just getting it slightly wrong, can change the course of the set piece. So the, the, the thing with it, like you can have, you have your strategy and you try to attack the opponent's weaknesses as best you can. Ultimately, football's played by humans and they make mistakes. So Maka there at Arsenal was a great example. Just made a mistake. It doesn't mean the goal's impossible to score because Ben could still, Ben Hennigan's number 22 for us, could still potentially get above his marker and the zonal player. That's an that's a possibility as well. On that occasion, he didn't. So that that's football. That then that's when, as I say, second phase is so important. That's when you fall back on your principles to how can we work the situation to get another chance instead. Hello, coaches. Take a quick break here. If you're enjoying this interview with Andy, and I'm sure you are, 
please click on the link below and join us for a full webinar with Andy to detail how you would organize and train your team during the pre-season period. So he's going to join us for a pre-season webinar, Modern Soccer Coach, July 26th. If you missed the live event, you get a full video recording of it as well for yours to keep forever. Click on the link below. Join us July 26th. Thank you. Here's Andy. Um, just on that, talk about the information. And one thing that still floors me in 2022 is is this, you know, you're getting a sub on and maybe it's a sub, you know, someone's called something or something's come up and you've got to get a sub on quick. Mm -hmm. So you've got to come up with your board uh, or your notepad or whatever it is, or your iPad to try to give them instructions. I mean, what's your processes around making sure that the sub has that information? Because there must be 20 things going through that player's head as well, yeah. you know? Yeah, without a doubt. Um, so I think the first thing is this is where principles rather than new routines all the time come into play. So the players, all the players in the squad should be familiar with, particularly from a defensive perspective, this is what we do. They so they know when they slot in. They know that let's say it's a, we're defending a wide free kick. They know when our line drops. They know where our line should be positioned. They know where in the line they should be because they've done it so many times and because like we're trying to ram home the message as much as we possibly can. Second thing is I'll always do a um, a, a squad meeting um, the day before a game where I'll go through the opposition's set piece strengths and weaknesses, how we're going to try and exploit their weaknesses and how we're going to try and limit or restrict their strengths as best as possible. So. The players should be prepared for what's coming. They should know who the the main threats are for the opponent based on what we what we prepared in advance. Um, you hope when you're making the when the subs being made that it's a like for like replacement. So you're replacing a let's say uh, I use Man City as an example. Phil Foden's being replaced by Bernardo Silva. So there's not too much disparity in terms of height. Whereas if you you're taking off um, let's say it's Laporte at City, he's coming off and Bernardo well. Silver's not going to do the same job that Laporte does from a set piece because it just doesn't make sense. So you hope that they're going to be light for light replacements because the players coming in will just fill in similar roles to what they normally do. The challenge comes when it is those sorts of situations where that we want to take off our big number nine, for example, to throw on a smaller forward. You've got to then try and move things about. And it's just a case of working quickly, working under pressure and keeping it, again, as simple as you possibly can. Um, my preference is always to make sure the defensive ones are right. So make sure that the player going on knows exactly what to do defensively because that's where things are a little bit more objective. They're a little bit more black and white. These are your roles, responsibilities. Sometimes I'll send on an attack and I'll say, just go and score or just, just run to the near post or something like that. Go and attack the ball, something like that. If I've already given him loads of things for, for defence and I know that we're under pressure to get him on as quickly as possible and the ball's just gone out of play, attacking ones, just go and attack the ball or just go and block this player or something like that. Just keep it as simple as possible. We have been, Ben Gardner on the podcast, like, oh, this must be two years ago, maybe more, and, and he was talking about working with uh, Pulis, and, and obviously Pulis's reputation and set pieces is, is very, very high. Uh, but he was basically talking about, you know, the, the fact that a leader, when a leader uh, values set pieces so much, it makes his job as a number two, and he was coordinating all that, it makes it a lot easier. Um, how have How have you found working with uh, the head coach and the leadership in, in the clubs? And, you know, do they have their own principles? Do you, how do you merge yours and theirs? And how do you go through that process? It was so far, the first head coach I worked for was, was Mark Robinson. Um, and he was the one that brought me in as set-piece coach. He's the one that identified um, the need for the role and secondly, me to, to, to fill the role, basically. Mm -hmm. um, so that was never going to be an issue in terms of a working relationship. Um, and as I said, the term that was, was used was, it's your baby. Um, I'll still speak and converse with the other coaches and, and the manager or head coach um, and get opinions because six brains is better than one. So it, it may, and I like an environment where we can challenge each other as well. So I'll put things forward and I want people to try and challenge it because it just it tests the strength of what I'm saying and what, what I'm doing before I then roll out to the players. Then Robbo unfortunately lost his job during the season. New manager came in and it was very much a case of um, you just take just take care of the set pieces. And it wasn't like if I, I still went to him, went to him with things, but it was just a yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that, that's, that's your thing. Um, so I've been fortunate to a point, I guess, because I haven't been micromanaged as such. Um, but I still think it's important for the head coach to or the manager to guide it a little bit, for example, because I think ultimately results are their responsibility. 
So if we, as I said, I'll always take responsibility for goals that we concede from, from set pieces, but really it's the manager that has to front up to the media and face the fans and that sort of thing. So I think it's important that they have a, a hand in what's going on as well. Um, otherwise, it's like having, it's like it's two different sports and you've got two different managers, a set piece manager. And a, it, I don't think it makes a huge amount of sense, but I, I found the working relationship positive so far. If, if a manager or head coach is getting in a set piece coach, clearly they must value it. They must, they must, they must value the person that's doing it. Otherwise, they wouldn't bother. Um, so I think you, you're already sort of onto, onto a winner with that. Um, and then, really, how that relationship goes just depends entirely on on what your output is and on what your success rate is like. If you're not scoring and you're conceding, the relationship is probably going to be a little bit more fractured because you've you've got to pull your finger out because it's your responsibility. Um, if the goals are flying in and you you're not conceding the other end, then then everything's good. You're going to carry on. See when you know. Delivery, for example, so important for set pieces and getting that right type of delivery. Do, do you go through, or is ball striking something that you know? Will you take a few players aside, or how do you do? You imp- that's probably one question. Is ball striking? Another question is like, how many takers do you have? You know, do you change it, or do you have the same taker all the time? I think you have. Um, so, personally, I have a. Um... A list of preference for for takers, um, but the player at the top of the list doesn't always play. So when he plays, he'll take them. He'll take all of them. If he's not playing, then I'll use someone else. But then I've also got to look at things like who I'm leaving back for set pieces. Now sometimes someone who's good at taking them is actually our best option to to leave back because they've got enough speed to defend the counter attack. They've got enough intelligence to see potential threats before they happen and organise things. So I've got a way up. Are they better off taking it? But it's a long recovery from the corner flag or are they better off in that position there? If I put him back, have I got someone who's equally as good or nearly as good as my next in line or do I need to find another solution? So I'll have sort of a list of preference and it just depends on the match day selection. So I'd, I'll tend to have an idea probably a few days before the game what things are looking like. Sometimes I hedge my bets and I'll take a couple over to do a few practice runs. Um but I'll um, yeah I'll, I'll sort of go down yeah list list of list of preference or list of priority. And in terms of the ball striking, it's a it's an interesting one because I was never a pro. I, I didn't play pro football, so I can't execute things as well as the players can from a technical perspective. So it's difficult for me to put the ball down and say this is what you do and then go and do it because I can't do it as well as they can. Otherwise, I'd be doing their job. Um, I will. I'm much better as a strategist. I'm good at solving problems and, and unlocking puzzles and that sort of thing and seeing where strengths and weaknesses are and how to exploit them. So then I can say to the player, or sit down with the player and show them, look, this is what I'm seeing. As a result, I think this type of delivery to this area is our best way of um, of unlocking this team. Let's go and practice it. So the player then knows, okay, if I'm this type of ball strike to this type of area, right, okay, this is what I need to do. And they'll be able to cover that side of it. So they're, they're the they're the sort of the players that have the technical execution and I'll I'll provide the, the strategy and the plan. Moving that moving it on then to, to your own to your own journey and as well like you talk about the well the lack of like if a coach brings you in as a head as a set piece coach, they're obviously open to the idea. Mm-hmm. How do you get players? Because there's a big difference between you know, we like the idea of something and then you walk in and you have something different and you start to, you know, the daily pro, the daily lives of people start to become shaken up a bit. And these yeah. like biggest, biggest creatures of habit, I think, are, are coaches and players, you know. Yeah. And so, so how do you or how have you manoeuvred around change and, and opening, unlocking that puzzle in people's heads? So I was... Fortunate initially coming in at Wimbledon because Mark Robinson was the head coach and he'd basically created and brought up the academy and the first team squads had a lot of academy products in there. So because it was Robbo's idea to bring in a set-piece coach and I also coached in the academy as well. I wasn't in there anywhere near as long as, as Robbo was. I was only in, in there two years, I think it was, or a year and a half. Um, but because the players were playing under Robbo, it was a lot easier for me to get buy-in from the bulk the challenge was to get the senior players on board, those that hadn't come through, those that had played elsewhere, played 300-odd league games, various different managers. It was then getting them to say no or to, to get on board with things that I'm, that I'm saying and asking them to do. Um, and the best way to do it is with results. It's, you can't argue. With, when the ball hits the back of the net from a set piece, you, you just can't argue against it, whether it's exactly what the plan was or not. And I'll come on to that in a bit. 
it's still an outcome. So you you can't say, well, no, I think we should have done this. Yeah, but the ball went in the goal. So you can't really argue against it. So I think um, I was fortunate in, in that sense that I had the bulk of the squad already because they came through the academy. And then as things went on, and I had a poor start in terms of, of us scoring goals. So I felt as though confidence in me dipped. Not my own confidence, confidence from the players in me dipped after about probably about 10, 10 games or so. We conceded one or two and we hadn't scored yet. We'd come close, but we hadn't scored. And then once we did finally score... We scored quite a few. And then, as I mentioned earlier, we got to a point where we scored the most in the country earlier this season. So by that point, everything that you say, the players are just going to do because they believe in, they, they trust you basically a little bit more. Um, so really, yeah, I was fortunate initially with the relationship that I had with, or the relationship the players had with, with the manager. Um, and then he just sort of built it from there. But I think what goes a long way as well is your own personality. So if I came in, because as I said, I struggled initially. If I came in and I was just, a volatile personality, not good to be around, just um, poor manner with the players, that sort of thing. doesn't matter if we score one or two goals, they're still going to resist. I think if you can be a good person as well and you can take an interest in the players and actually build a connection with the players properly, like have chats with them, find out about their family, that sort of thing, it just strengthens the relationship and it, it just makes it easier to, to get by and further down the line. And then, as you say, players and coaches are creatures of habit. So when you try something that's a little bit different, if you've got that good connection with them, then a lot more likely to say, all right, let's, let's do it. Let's give it a go. Let's spend an extra 20 minutes practicing after a session. Whereas if you haven't got the relationship, probably not going to happen. Yeah, I really enjoyed that piece on, well, I thought it was a, a consistent theme. Your interview with Saul was, you know, being a good person and being a good communicator. And we kind of generalize good people, skills as coaches today. We're like, oh, that's a great person because we want to show them that we're their friend on social media. But yeah. in reality, when you get into an environment, it's a lion's den in terms yeah. of players, coaches, like, and having to maneuver around that every day. How do you learn that if you, you know, if you have a young coach that is unaware? Do you just learn by experience? Yeah, basically. Yeah. And to be fair, to be, to be clear, being a, being a good person doesn't mean smiling and nodding and agreeing and trying to be everyone's friend. I think it's just being genuine and being honest. So I, I'm as honest, I'm direct and honest as, as I come, and it's been to my detriment at times where I've not been in an environment that's um, been a great advocate of that sort of thing. They sort of want more yes men, but when you get into the right environment where that's welcome and people want you to challenge, you like you say it's a lion's den, and it's. I always thought about it like the if you think back to like school days, the the popular kids, if you like, they tend to be the sporting ones, the ones that play football and and, and that, and you think all the players that are in a first team squad, they've probably gone through their entire school life being the top dog and then suddenly they get into a first year environment where everyone's the top dog because they've all had that same up that same sort of experience not everyone but a lot of them and trying to sort of go in and be sort of direct and and match with them i'm not i'm not i'm not sure that trying to match them for that is is exactly the right way to go it's it's just being just being genuine but you've got to be able to be honest you've got to be like they respect you so much more if you just tell them the truth and if that's saying you weren't at it today or um this what this isn't acceptable or whatever it is, whether it's an on the pitch or off the pitch thing, they respect you more for saying it. I, I, I don't know who to attribute this quote to, but there's a quote, I'm sure you've heard it before, that your standards basically are the, um, or sort of your, the, the norm is the lowest standard that the leader's willing to accept. So if you're letting things slide, letting things go, that's going to become the norm. So you've got to make sure that if you, you're just honest with people all the time. And, and for me, that is being a good person. It's holding people to high standards. It's digging in yourself as well, not, expecting other people to do things that you won't do. So if you're going to hammer an under 18 for not picking up a bottle that's lying on the pit, well, you've got to be willing to do that yourself as well. That's being a good person, in my opinion. And I just think that, I personally, I, th I found it to be beneficial throughout throughout my journey so far. And I, I, think, it, I think it's the right way to be. But it's 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 not always easy. And like bringing it back, back to your question, how is it to sort of manage that in, in this sort of environment? It's very easy to regress to whatever the norm is. So I've been in situations or I've been in environments where the standards are way below mine. And I have and I have to credit my missus here because she's someone that's kept me in check on it in, in the past when I was younger of you've got to keep to your standards. And if those standards are lower than you, you've got to either get out of that environment or bring everyone else up to your level. You can't just regress to that because then you're doing yourself a disservice. You're doing the players you're working with a disservice. You're not giving the best that you possibly can to what you're doing. Um, so it's making sure you're maintaining those high standards as well. 
that's good to have a significant other when you go home and moan about it and they put you in your place, doesn't it? It's good to have that. <laughs> no, no. Well, to, be, to be fair, I mentioned to you off, off, off air before that I used to coach five days a week, teaching PE, coach five evenings a week in performance academies and, and club academies as well, coach at the weekends. The girl that was with me then, I married a couple of weeks ago. So she's been with me the whole way through. So now massive credit to her for keeping me in check. Brilliant, brilliant. Congratulations. That's yes. awesome. Brilliant. Um, you've your journey again in, in Saul's interview I, I found it really kind of refreshing is that you know you're looking for you don't have the ex-pro background to get mm-hmm. in so you come in through an academic background yeah. the analysis which of course I, I, I really like the analysis side myself but you also then decided to accompany the analysis with the coaching again was this something that you took a you took a stand back and you were quite deliberate with that or was the analysis something that you thought this suited your personality? Or, or, or how did you merge the two? How did you know to merge the two together, I guess, is what I'm asking? Um, I think the, so the analysis role um, at Luton that I took up after I finished uni, that was, I took that because the opportunity was there. I didn't, I wasn't in my last year at uni thinking, right, next year I'm, I'm going to go into analysis because that's what I want to do because I've always wanted to be a coach. That's, that's, that's what I did before I did the analysis, like at Sunday league level and that sort of thing. But coaching on the grass and then coaching on the sidelines on a, on a match day, that's what I enjoy. I'm a very competitive person and I like to sort of have that impact in, in those areas. So I saw the analysis as an opportunity. Now, I what I was good at while I was at uni was recognising that I wasn't an ex-pro. I don't have a name in the game at, at that moment in time. There's so many people in this country alone that will want to do what I want to do in the future. So what am I going to do? that's different to them. So there'll be things like, well, well I'm not going to go out clubbing four times a week at uni while, while you guys are staying and I'll, I'll start learning the language or I'll do this or I'll go and shadow coaches or, or something like that. Um, so I can do those sorts of things. But then when I graduate, where do you go from there? So ideally, I want to go straight into a coaching role. Well, there's not going to be a queue of clubs waiting to bring me in. I'm just a guy with a sports science degree among however many others. So what can I do now that's going to separate me from other people? So that analysis opportunity came up. It was an unpaid internship. So I already knew because it was unpaid, at least half the people on my cohort of university would not be interested. So I'm already ahead of them, no problem. So then I need to look at, well, thankfully, the things that I've done throughout uni, of I got got my level two and, and did different coaching bits on the side while other people were out clubbing and partying. I still did that a little bit as well, but not as much as other people. Um, that probably sets me apart from others that are going through it. So I'm probably a little bit ahead of them now as well. So I just threw an application in and thankfully got the got the position. So now I'm thinking, right, I've got a degree and now I've got this year's experience or pending experience um, with the first team. So that's now going to separate me from loads of other people. But experience, but there will also be X amount of people that have just graduated, got a degree and have done an internship or done a year. And what am I going to do to separate from them? Well, while I'm on this internship, I'm going to get my B licence. So I've got my B licence. Um, so it's just constantly looking at things. How am I going to separate myself from other people and, Football is such a popular industry and there's you just have to look at the amount of people that or coaches or managers that are out of the game that aren't in a job at the moment that are all looking to try and get back in. And to just think that someone's going to turn up and go, Andy, here's a job. It's not going to happen. You've got to do things that are going to separate you. So I looked at things like that. So I've tried to learn different languages. I've tried to go out and meet different people. I've travelled abroad. So you mentioned Border Glimpt earlier. I went out and spent, spent a week there a couple of years ago with them um, before they got into the Europa League and spent a year trying to, sorry, spent a week trying to, just learn something a little bit different from, from how another professional club operates and just constantly doing different things. And then, as I said, the objective has always been to be a coach at the highest level. Eventually, potentially, I'd like to be a manager as well. Um, but I'm 31 at the moment. I've hopefully got a long way to go. Um, and just keep on looking to try and separate myself from other people and keep pushing things on and driving high standards. And and, and those opportunities, I, I believe, will will present themselves. Fantastic. Fantastic. Um, the, the unpaid internship and, and i think this is i think maybe we're changing our mentality it, it's getting now in america and the U, the us i think coaching is a quite lucrative profession mm. to be honest um people are now turning their nose up but unpaid and i think social media is kind of through that as well especially in the analysis area yeah where if you put up an internship position you'll you know five big names will probably hammer it but what i liked about like I, I actually think the majority of work I've done, probably seventy five percent of it's been just for free. Yeah. Um, 
I really like your your said on Saul's interview. You said if I don't do it, somebody else is going to do it. Exactly. Exactly. So then, then when your two CVs go into a row, well, they've got that experience. So yeah. why don't I let them get ahead of me? Yeah, I love that. I love that. Um, the, the mentality then to, to go ahead, and that was another one of my questions was, whenever you're in the role, and as well like as well as being a lion's den. It is a frantic life in a professional club where it's yeah. you know you're you're at the highest level doing three games a week and with pressure and all that. There, how do you then keep that professional development head, you know, and keep the next thing and the next what's coming next in the you know and keep ahead of of uh, new thinking? It's 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 difficult to be fair to to try and and cultivate time to dedicate to your own development is complicated. However. The best development that you have is the experience you're going through. So there's the Saturday, Tuesday, the games, the fixtures, the training, and everything, and sort of working and living the day to day life. That's probably the best development I can have at the moment because it's constant and immediate feedback. Like, really, I think the best thing I can do at the end of every day is write down everything that I've learned, everything that I did that I thought was positive, everything I think I could do better, and just keep trying to improve day by day. I would like to be able to to do more. So as I said, I, I try to learn languages. I speak Spanish and I'm, I'm trying to learn Portuguese. Um, just had a little girl's uh, 15, 16 weeks now. So my time, in, I used to get up at five o'clock and do a couple of hours work before I went into to training. So I'd do like a, I'd, I'd watch a game or I'd do hour and a half of language learning or whatever. Unfortunately, her body clock's now set to five o'clock. So I've had to now start getting up at four o'clock just to get an hour in before she wakes up. And sometimes she doesn't wake up till six or I get an extra hour. So it's fitting it in where I can. I always think people say, oh, I haven't got time to do this. I haven't got time to do Everyone's got time to do these things. Mm. It's how much value you place on those things that you're looking to do and where you can fit the time in. Um, but you could, you can always find time to, to try and improve yourself. Might not be easy. And it, well, it certainly should be difficult. If it wasn't difficult, then everyone would do it. But if, I think if you're, you're really serious about improving and trying to get to the next level, you have to find the time or make the time at least to um, to, to dedicate to y- yourself to improving because I've, I've personally found the best development that I had um, in terms of my understanding of football was through analysis that I've done. So I, I do a lot of analysis for the coaches' voice um, who are quite big on, on social media. And Brilliant, thank Yeah, yeah. Um, and my game knowledge, once I started working for them, which was in 2018, I think it was, just went through the roof in terms of the detail because I was watching and analysing games all the time. Now, anyone can do that. The amount of football that's on TV at whatever level, anyone can sit down and just... Like, I'm not watching it in tactical cam as much as I'd like, so I'm watching it on the, the broadcast um, stream. So anyone can sit down and stop and rewind and work out things, and you're not going to see everything straight away, but the more you do it, the better you're going to get. It's just actually putting in the time and sticking with it. Um, so I think it's a, a very long way of saying, I think... In terms of my own development, I try and fit it in where I can. I try and make the time as much as I can. Unfortunate as well that we have away trips where we're on coaches for three hours or trains for three hours, staying at hotels. I can fit in a, a bit there, here and there. Um, and yeah, just just fit in where you can and find the time. We'll take our last break here. Coaches, if you're looking for some ideas for the pre-season as well as set pieces and you're looking for some session ideas we've just released a new ebook 20 training session plans for elite level team all attacking all in possession all principle based full session plans build up midfield combination progression and then attacking in the final third as well really enjoyed putting it all together tried to challenge myself every exercise had to be related to a tactical objective so there's 60 exercises total it's on the modern soccer coach website modernsoccercoach.com slash shop if you really want to go that extra yard to support the work sign up for andy's webinar and get yourself a copy of the ebook you'll get it right away thanks so much for the support modernsoccercoach.com slash shop back to andy i've nearly made it through the whole thing without uh repeating any of Saul's question but i want people you know, if they're listening for this long, they're obviously intrigued by it. I want, I want to put the link to Saul's interview in the in the notes to go and listen to that as well. Because what I really enjoyed about that was your honesty and a little bit of vulnerability to be like, I made a mistake in this. But you, you it was, again, a constant theme where it was like, and I look back and reviewed and 
you know, and I heard that a few times. Is that something that you said there about reflections? Is that something you're quite deliberate with in your processes? Or is that just natural for you, quite a reflective person? Um, probably a little bit of both, I think. Um, I think, so I, I, you, you would have heard it in, in Saul's interview, I give a lot of credit to my first academy role at Brentford um, because we had an environment there which was huge on reviewing. Um, so I mentioned we used to sit for an hour after sessions, all the coaches, and just rip each other's sessions apart and just took the smallest little detail, we just hammer it. And because you make sure when you come back for the next session, that detail is spot on. doesn't matter what it was, you make sure that's right. And then they'll come back with something else. So if you think about that, every session you're getting a little bit better. You're not making those same mistakes. So I think it's probably partly personality, but I think that environment as well, that environment of honesty and that review process probably shapes it a little bit more. Um, it's, it's massively important. It's hugely important because I think you end up just doing things without conscious thought of why you're doing them if you're not reviewing. Whereas I think if you're looking back and thinking, right, when I did this, I really like that interaction or the way I put that point across. I'll use that method again. Or I don't feel as though I was really, um, I don't think I really held the room when I made that point. So I need to look at what was my body language like? What was my tone of voice like? How long did I take to make the point? Was there anything visual there to, to help illustrate the point? Um, just looking back on as many details as possible. And I'm not saying that you, you make the mistake once, you're going to get it spot on the next time. You might make the mistake in a slightly different way, but it might also be a little bit better than it was. So it's just constantly, like I don't think any, everyone anyone does everything perfect all of the time. So there's always going to be something that you can try and improve on. If you don't review it, if you don't reflect reflect on it, you're probably not going to make those improvements. I just, I, I think if you're, if you're not reflecting and reviewing on your own personal performance, and this comes back to what I said earlier, you always look at yourself first. We live in a society where everyone wants to put blame somewhere. It's, right, something's gone wrong. Who are we going to blame for this? Whereas, really, you need to look inwardly first. You need to, right, what could I have done better? It might not have been my direct responsibility, but could I have helped in some way? Could I have done something differently that might have affected the outcome? And I think once you sort of, you, you work off of that basis, I think the review and the reflection comes a bit more naturally. Brilliant. Brilliant. And then on the other side, the planning side, you know, a lot of coaches listening to this that are probably on their summer holidays or that are having a little break and about to start pre-season in, in a few weeks. A lot of coaches that are have zero processes in, and it's quite natural having zero set-piece processes in their environment and maybe they've only got one coach and maybe they don't have an assistant and you're sitting here planning for a new season and saying, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to set a goal to be more deliberate about or more intentional, get getting better in that department. What would be a, a piece of advice or a couple of pieces of advice for them? Uh, be consistent with it. It's, it's so I, I think at the start of a new season and at the start of a new calendar year, so many people get this, um, this rush or this, this desire to think, no, this year or this season, I'm going to do this, 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 and this. And by let's say it's a new calendar year, by February it's stopped. So it's consistency, and it's and this again will come back to reviewing and reflecting, consciously working through. So this is what I want to do. Yeah, okay, this is what I want, but how am I going to do it? So making sure you've got a methodology, a plan for. I don't know. I'll use language as an example. So I want to learn Portuguese now. Just by saying right this year I'm going to do it, it's not going to make it happen. I need to know when I'm going to be learning it, how often I'm going to be doing it, and what methods I'm going to be using. So am I going to be reading books, listening to radio, listening to podcasts? conversing with people when I can, um, building up vocabulary online, whatever. I need to know what I'm going to be doing, when I'm going to be doing it, so that each week I know, right, this is how I'm going to hit that target because each small step that I'm making, when I look back in December of that year, all those steps add up to one big improvement. So the key thing for me is being consistent and sticking with it. I've been guilty of it so many times in the past of thinking, right, I'm going to do this. And then it just feels like you the first week, two weeks, you're spot on all the time, making sure you, and then you think, oh, I can't bother today. As soon as you've had that, have that first day off, it's gone. Last one. Again, you talk about quite a lot on youth development in Saul's interview. And, and I found it, again, very rare for a, a set-piece specialist at the highest level to, to go down there. You normally have uh, people that, that are specialists are kind of talking about the professional level the whole time. But it made me think, and it made me think that, if we talk about and you reverse engineer it, you're working with senior players, professional level, high pressure, high stakes, and the mm -hmm. and we saw the Arsenal clip and six foot players, good in the air, detail, all this thing. Do you look at the youth level now and think we should put more time into being better in the air, or 
can you improve head and when should you it's a very basic question but like when is that a specialist skill that maybe we should be spending more time to or or do you just think it's okay the way it is it's i don't think it's okay the way it is um i don't think it's any more specialist than passing the ball it's still it's still an action of moving your body towards the ball to try and send it to another destination it's it's just a different way of doing it now the heading technique is is one thing yeah you can try and try and learn but something that i've really learned since I've been in first team, because I bear in mind, I went from, I was coaching under 14s one week and then the next week I'm with the first team. So it's, I, I went directly from development football into first team football. And that was among other staff that have been in development football as well. So we always try to relate it back to what we used to coach and things. And there are things we felt that we got right and things that we felt that we got wrong. Things like um, the academy game, certainly in this country, a lot of the games look exactly the same. Mm. High press, play out from the back, play through the thirds. And that's great. That's, that's no problem at all. But you'll get players that go through that and do nothing else. And they come on loan to a lower league club and they don't know how to pick up a second ball. They don't know how to run the channel. They only know how to show up towards the ball and then play combinations, play up back throughs, that sort of thing. They don't know how to see a game out. They don't know just all these all these other side, other parts of the game. They're not taught well enough. And it's because it's not fashionable. And I guarantee if a coach in an academy level, let's say under 14, for example, starts talking about second balls on a match day, um, runs in behind, missing out the opponent, playing in behind, so playing more, more direct, opposition, other people are going to be saying, well, he's just playing a win. He's, he's only focused on results, not development. Well, his development is learning, it's education. And it, actually, another thing that I learned when I came to first team football, it's no different at that level. It's still education. It's still learning the game. It's still No one knows everything there is to know about football. There's always things that can evolve and improve. Um, and I think as soon as you land on, right, this is what we do at academy level, I think at that point you've got it wrong. Because you, you need to be able to teach more sides of the game. You need to be able to, to evolve things as much as possible. Um, so I, I think, yeah, again, it's a long way of saying, I think at lower sorry, not like youth level and, and lower league level and that sort of thing, we need to be able to teach those things better. But I think the coaches need to be able to understand those things better because I've never been on a coach education course that talks about second balls. Mm-hmm. But it's so important. Pep Guardiola, when he arrived at Man City, one of the first things he said is, I, I never realised in England how important the second ball is. Now, this isn't a coach that you associate with second balls. But I look at when I watch them, Rodri, for example, unbelievable picking them up. His anticipation of where the ball's likely to land, because bear in mind, a lot of teams against City will play direct because they think it's a weakness of, against City. But he'll land on so many because he anticipates it. Now, this is a player at the very top level. So why, why do we only look at the like the worldy reverse passes and the like the whip crosses in behind and the third man? Why do we only look at those? We've got to look at it because it's all football. Everything ultimately, when you get to, to senior level, is geared towards trying to win a game of football. Now, if you're not equipped with the tools to do that, the chances of you winning that game of football diminish. So we're actually doing players a disservice at, at um, youth level by not teaching these things. It's not the be all and end all, but it's something that needs to improve, in, in my opinion. Mm. And when, you, when you're trying to break into that senior side, a coach will rarely start a player who's a defensive liability, right? He'll, at best, they'll bring them off the bench or she'll bring them off the bench. Mm-hmm. So if they don't have that defensive foundation, like you mentioned in that other interview about the this the detail in the fullback getting out and stopping crosses, yeah. it's never talked about no. with today. And I, again, I, I, I don't work at... I used to... 15 years I worked as a college coach. I used to watch a lot of U14, 16, 18s games. Mm. And again, the intensity of defensive actions used to drive me mad. And and sometimes I wonder now if, if and again, you're coming from, you've, you, you've, you're you in a position to comment on reverse engineering, something coming yeah. from an environment. Should we be spending less time doing a 6v4, very sophisticated rondo and more time doing you know, get out, stop, block, come back, you know? I, I think so. Um, again, it's, it's always going to be a balance. Mm. And ultimately, it's always going to be about what the players that you're working with need. So if you've, if you've got, if you're working with, I don't know, a group of six players um, and they just happen to be your central midfielders and they're, I don't know, pivots or tens or whatever they might be, then that action of getting out and stopping crosses or um, dealing with overlapping runners, probably not the most important thing for them to be doing. There might be more important things. If you've got fullbacks and wingers, They've got to be working on that a lot. So one of my favourite things to do, and this was with my under-14s group that I had, and I do it every week, um, every Monday it was, position-specific work. 
and they would get endless repetition of things that they need to be able to do on a Sunday or a Saturday, whenever the game is, um, because ultimately that's what they're used to time losing. That's what their job is. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, uh, my centre back doesn't necessarily need to be doing a load of third man runs and playing in this um, possession practice that looks incredible and it's, it looks really neat and tidy and that. And people say, "What great football!" And that's great. We can we can use that as well. But my centre back needs to know about what. Like the position of his hips when he's like the timing of when he's going to drop and how he's going to defend 1v1, how he's going to delay things, how he's going to cover a fullback that's been caught high up. They need to know these things, but they need repetition of doing it because, as you said, the, a first team manager is not going to bring someone in that's a liability. The most important thing for a first team manager is that they can trust the person they're bringing in. They can't trust them, they're not going to do it because it's not the player that's um, going to get sacked, it's the manager that's going to get sacked if the results aren't good enough. So the manager has to be able to trust that this player isn't going to cost them a game, cost them a result, cost them a goal, whatever. But we need to, at the youth levels, be putting in those, like, I'm not talking about under nines and under tens here, but as they go through the programme, they need to get better and more frequent exposure to those sorts of things than they're getting so far. Fantastic. Fantastic. There's something for everyone there. You've got the, the set piece stuff, youth development, we've got professional development. This has been fantastic. Andy, thank you so much. Love no that. Well, thank you for having me on. It's been fun. Thank you for listening to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. For more coaching topics, sessions, and resources, head on over to Coach Kernine on Facebook or visit the website at www.modernsoccercoach.com.